how are you? How I'm, you doing, uh, Dwayne? In the middle of Greece, in the middle of the Cyclades. That's the island chain that makes up Mykonos, Santorini, Naxos, Peros. There's a sea in the middle of it, and I'm just floating along on my boat. And I turned off the engine. I'm idling so I can have this conversation with you. Where are you from, Dwayne? Where did you grow up? Born and raised in Los Angeles, California. How would you describe your childhood? Americana. I had two a brother and two sisters. My parents were very ambitious immigrants, first-generation immigrants. Worked that crazy. I was offered a lot of opportunity to learn a lot of things very young. So I had a lot of I had a lot of opportunity that many people may not. I learned how to work very young and produce things and got to see the world or lots of parts of it back in the I'm 61. So that was in the, the mid 60s to the 70s and 80s. And uh, and so we were taught uh, a lot of respect. Um, and my mom and dad stayed together. So I had a very stable household and my father was very rigid and not very easy for me to get along with. He was very strict and, uh, you know, was he ruled with a, with a stiff hand. Was he very and, successful, uh, Dwayne? Very. Yeah. Yep. Do you think, do you think you inherited something from him? Absolutely. They had, the my mom and my dad and my uncles we had a huge family around us we believed that we could do anything we always had an optimistic an optimistic attitude but it wasn't because you just sit around and wait for shit to come you didn't ask other people what to do you identify a problem and then you go about solving it and you believe that you're going to succeed you believe you're going to win you believe you're going to succeed so it's that traditional, classic American, California, take on the world, optimism, we can do anything we want of that era. That was the era of the 60s and 70s, right? That was that was yeah. post, that was Nixon, that was post Kennedy, that was flying to the moon. Um, That's incredible right. period in, in the United States. That's right. Yeah. We were riding a high on the results, even then. You know, the America won the World War II, so we can do anything and we have everything. And we and and it was a time when the laws were uh, conducive to growth. So if you bought a piece of property and you wanted to improve it, you know, permit was just assumed and for nothing, 25, 50 bucks, a couple hundred bucks, you could go build yourself a 30,000 square foot restaurant. Amazing. And there was... You know, that was the land of, you know, Disneyland opened like in 1964, I think. And that was like, what? You can make a land of your own within a place, you can, a land, you can create a land and, you know, amusement park. Well, what is this? Hollywood was there. You could just make up anything you want. People would say, oh, yeah, we could do this. Let's do this. Let's just, yeah, of course you can do it. Is this how? You fly to the moon? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Why? Why not? Everything. Everything. So that's the era that I grew up. And tell me then, when you, you moved into construction, right? You, you, you built your first house at, was it 15 years of age, supervised by your, your father or something, yeah. was it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I started working with my dad when I was 12. 
pretty much every minute I had that wasn't, you know, consumed by school or family. My dad would make sure I got taken on to job sites and he was building lots of things. They would build schools and hospitals and houses and just stuff all over LA. And um, so at one point, and he would often loan people money to uh, buy a house and then they would default on the loan and then he'd end up having the house. And so they would be in bad repair. And so by the time I was 15, my dad said, hey, why don't you take care of, you know, overseeing and remodeling this house? It was a small wow. two or three bedroom thing. And I was like, okay. And he, he, one of his brothers, my uncle's was a good carpenter. Mm. And he said, okay, well, Roger will do whatever you need him to do. And you can just order everything. And he had a real office, you know, so I got to use the office and, and I'd have Roger and I'd go out there and stand with him and other guys and show me how to put doors and windows and hire the stucco guy and her. And I got the whole thing done. I mean, and then he re-rented it out. I got paid, you know, not a lot. <laughs> five bucks you, an hour <laughs> you were you were 15 16 years of age at the time 15. right yeah yeah i had to wow. walk around i didn't have a car but i got on the phone you know it's sit in his office and call people hey i need this i need that I need this I need that and you'd find it and we had access it would because you know it was a big contracting office so that's where i it was just pounded into me didn't play sports in high school it was frowned upon uh, so that, you know, it's kind of unusual upbringing. I will say that I'm not mm. sure I'd wish it upon even my enemies because it's like, I mean, I, I, everybody else was doing that stuff, but my dad was kind of psycho. He would say, oh, you know, sports are for kids. who don't have the opportunity to work. Wow. Yeah. That was his, and, and, and if I disagreed with them and he'd be mad around the house. <laughs> so did he, did, he, did he not see the value in play and camaraderie and, and teamwork and all no, that kind oh, of stuff? No, 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 he wasn't into it. Was it a Germanic kind of Northern European work yeah. ethic? Yeah, he was hardcore German. Hardcore. We got to succeed because, you know, he was in World War II and he mm. was like, ah, we got to beat the Russians. We got to stay focused. There's no time for play. We have to finish. And that was how it was, you know. I wanted to play, believe me. <laughs> I mean, I got to go down on the weekend or on the after, you know, I'd sneak in times and I, we'd go play a little basketball, but, and we'd go, I'd go on the field, sandlot, you know, hit the ball, play baseball with guys, but organized sports where it takes your afternoon and you have to commit to it five days a week for two hours a day, that bullshit, you know, go play. Yeah. You can go play a little bit with your neighbors and your friends. We had neighbors all over the place. We'd have swarm of kids running around. And I learned how to wrestle and I learned how to a little bit about sports and all that stuff, but organized sports. No. I mean, I did play one year. I, and in eighth grade, I learned how to wrestle and I was on the wrestling team and I was really good. I went undefeated because my neighbors taught me how to wrestle, but my dad never came and saw. Then, I mean, then my mom, they were too busy with my sisters and my brother, my sisters, mostly I had older sisters who were very high maintenance. But I learned how to produce and I learned that. So I had a lot of skills and, and, but regardless of that, there was always this attitude that, yeah, if you try something, you will succeed. And it's interesting. I'm a brother 
who's a very successful clothing designer. And he's built his own brand from nothing. And I'll say my parents were well off, you know, I mean, they weren't billionaires, but we owned houses and cars and second houses. And yeah, we were comfortable. They never gave us a penny. Not a penny. Well, apart okay. from money, what? but they gave you many other things, Dwayne. They gave you... Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. A work But it isn't work like, ethic. oh, here, you know, here's mm. a bunch of cash. Go start this thing. It's like, if I did ask my dad for money, he'd say, well, what's in it for me? <laughs> like if I said, okay, I'm going to go build this house, dad. I'm going to buy this lot and build this house. And I need, you know, it was, hey, do you want to make an investment? And he was not, I mean, he was, he was shrewd. I like my first real individual deal I did on my own. I was like 30, well, not first one, but one of. And I was in it, went to a different area and I needed a co-signer from the bank and I didn't have enough credit because it was a big spec house. So I had to go grovel back and ask my dad if he would do it. And he said, yeah, I'll take 30% of the upside. I'll give you right. a signature. Okay. So, so you went to college, you graduated from college um, and you were working, you started your business, right? At are you saying 30 years of age was really when you started? About 27 on my own business. Yeah, because I, I went to school for any carpenter, mostly. And then I uh, got out of school. I traveled for a couple of years to see the world because I never had before that. That was cool. I just kind of backpacked, shoestring, uh, went through Southeast Asia and Australia. And then I uh, came back and I was like, all right, I want to make some money. So I had my degree. My I have a degree in engineering. And with that, Construction, I was able to civil engineering, is it? Yeah. And I was able to get my contractor's license and I started bidding work for people. And I started doing just everything, you know, anything from a little backyard pergola and some slabs. And I finally got a contract for a couple big custom homes. I was like 27, 28. Is this and in LA I, or is this up north? In, this is in Orange LA, County. right? Orange County. Yeah. Right. South, South Orange County. And then I, uh, a guy I knew from college, he owned an empty piece of land way out in the country in a place called Temecula, which was like almost not populated at the time. It was a good two hour drive. Just out on the outskirts of the edge of growth. And he had a lot, which is, you know, there was many of them out there and he owned it. Mm. And he was an older guy. He was my math, my math teacher. And I knew him because he would see me working all the time. And when I'd walk into math class, he'd say, how come you're fucking all dirty all the time? And, and I'd laugh. I said, oh, cause that's what I do. I, I build and, and this is, I'm going to college full time. And he says, oh, he goes, oh, interesting. You're a builder because I have this piece of property out in the country. I always thought I'd save it and build it someday. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And that was it. And then it was maybe eight years later. And I was like trying to find my own job to build. and. I remembered, like, oh, that guy had that empty lot. I wonder what he's doing with it. So I called him and I said, hey, you want to throw it in the pool and we'll build a spec house? He goes, ah, it's a great idea. I'll never build that thing. He wow. bought it for 10,000, 20,000 bucks, you know, maybe 10, 15 mm. years before. And um, so I built it and I, I called uh, my bunch of friends and family. I put 20,000 here, 30,000 there, and I built it for 
couple hundred grand and then it didn't sell <laughs> and i had to sit on it i rented it out for like 1200 bucks a month and it did, did, this, so did it, that cover the, the the cost of the mortgage under the finances? Well, there was no mortgage at the time. It was it was just people had investment in it, and they were getting a piece okay. of the profit, right? But and so then, and then a big event happened in two thousand or in nineteen ninety one. If you look this up, it was called the Oakland Hills Firestorm, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, it was like September nineteen ninety one. There was a big fire right in the middle of the yellow dot with the best real estate is houses individual houses you know small Oakland is in san francisco roads. right just just on the north it has Pacific a view of san francisco bridge. yeah yeah you see that beautiful bay bridge bay bridge the downtown yeah. view it's the best view in northern california better than in san francisco and um so three thousand five hundred houses burned down in one day just so now it was opportunity for guys like me single family home building guys so I flew up there and I needed cash to buy some empty land. So I called all the guys who invested in my property and I said, Hey, you know, I have no note against this, but I have this 1200 bucks a month that I'm renting this house for. It's a big house, like 4,000 foot house, four bedrooms, big kitchen. It's executive home. It's a gorgeous big mm. home. And I built it all just with most of it, my sweat equity and labor. Like I did almost all the labor on it myself. So I kept the cost pretty low. And I said, I went to the bank. I said, hey, look, I have this income from the rent. Will you loan me against this house? And they said, yeah, sure. Because they want to make a loan. So they loaned me 200000 I took that 200000 I went to Oakland and I bought my first two empty properties. Just It burned out lots. And then I ran around, went to banks. So I found somebody who would loan me just the construction money, mm. which at the time the numbers worked out. This was 90, but I started getting going about late 92, early 93. Um, took about a year to make all that happen. Year and a half, 18 months, maybe. And um, I uh, borrowed money. Like, I think I paid 90,000 for the lot. I put like, 300,000 into the construction and I sold it for 525,000 bucks and paid realtors out of that 6%, I mean, 5% maybe at the time, you know, 25, 30,000 there's closing costs and taxes and shit. And so you make, you work your ass off for a year, you make a hundred grand. Um, and, uh, and uh, I did that once, but once I did that, everybody saw I was building really beautiful homes because I'm, I was very, I, my, my signature is very artisan homes. Custom built. Custom built and a lot of artisan pieces. Like I will make my own concrete steps, for example, and I'll put patterns in them and I will build custom pieces of furniture along the way. I mean, I'm going to do the foundation of the frame and run the tractor and dig it all up and get the frame up. That's just, you know, sticks and bricks. But how you finish it off is I learned a lot of trades. I got very lucky. One thing my dad did for me, he put me on with a very special guy when I was like 15, 16. Uh, one of his foremen was a guy named Jerry Houlet. And Jerry Houlet was the foreman previously 
for Walt Disney when they built the built Disneyland. And wow. so after that job was over, my dad hired him to build these amazing restaurants that he was building that were themed. And so Jerry, uh, when I, he just, I worked for Jerry. He was one of his superintendents and I just to show up every day. And it was sort of like the karate kid wax on wax off. Well, they taught me all these trades to wax on. Why, you know, just how to, how to make concrete look like wood and make wood look like concrete and to fuck around with, with different materials to make, and then you have them a serviceable thing that looks beautiful. And so, so I knew a lot was of he an expert crafts. in design. Do you think Dwayne was, was he a brilliant designer? No, we knew how to hire designers. Okay. You know, design is an art and art is something that's in, you know, intuitive, but it's also learned. You have to study a lot to really appreciate art of the time. And it's just like anything, you know, you have to hire people who are excellent in what they do and then collaborate with them. And so what the trade I was really taught was how to appreciate everybody's really good craft. I mean, you have to hire really good engineers too, right? Mm. You have to hire good soils engineers, mechanical engineers and structural engineers and site engineers and, and then arch, you know, exterior architects, interior architects, um, um, site planners, uh, colorists, there's eight people right there you could hire on any site and then get the best of each of them and make them all work together, dovetail to make something beautiful. That's what I do. And then I have my own crafts as well. And so with the opportunity in Oakland Hills, right, that you saw, how come there wasn't um, loads of other construction companies um, trying to rebuild? Like, how did you get in there? You had you had a well, difficult I, There were. There yeah. were loads of other. There was a zillion of them. They came from all over the country. And I, uh, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that make people succeed and not succeed. Um, I saw a lot of guys, they, they came and they worked hard, but then you had to sort of, I was at the right age at the right time. Um, I mean, I was young and single, so I could stay anywhere. And I did meet a woman there who I partnered up with and she was a designer and we worked together and that was pretty cool. Um, and there's, uh, you know, some guys did succeed, but is you know, I wasn't track home builder. I wasn't like today there's huge builders in America. There's Shea homes and KB homes and, uh, Semco homes. There's all these, you know, they build thousands and thousands of units a year. Well, they can't do what I do, build one house at a time and make money on it. They got to just do mass construction. So in the Oakland Hills, each lot was individually owned. So they could never go in there and buy a thousand at one time. It just They need to go and buy a hundred acres. It's empty, carve them up, and boom, that's their program. So those guys were no competition. So I'm really only competing against other guys who do one at a time, two at a time, three, maybe four. But beyond that, it just gets too complicated to do something really well. And um, so there was, there was, but there was 3,000 lots. I mean, I ended up building 50 of them up there. 50. And, in, uh, in what period of time, Dwayne? How long are we talking here? Is it two years, five I built years? Three, for 30 years, I built three big projects a year. And the way okay. weren't always homes. I, I built commercial buildings, but I went from ground up uh, that means buying the land, you know, do the whole development process. 
you got to identify it, buy it. Get to buy it right. You got to invest it. I mean, and, and you got to get it um, financed. You got to design it. You got to engineer it. You got to build it. You got to maintain, uh, sell it, and then main, man, manage the sale or the after sale. And if you like, like if you build something perfect and then something goes wrong and it gets a leak or whatever, and if you don't fix that leak, they're going to come back and sue you. But worse than that, it's going to fuck your name up. So, you know, you have to, on every and of every one of those seven things I just identified, you, if you if you screw up the engineering, doesn't matter how good the design is, it won't mm. work, right? Mm. And if you screw up the buy, if you pay too much for it in the beginning, then it doesn't matter how well you do the other six, you'll never make money on it. So you have to pay the right amount, blah 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 blah. You have to sell it for the right amount. You have to have a good you know sales team, whatever, or rent it, and then you have to have a management process in order to rent it out and hold it. So you have to be like, you have to play all the positions on the field. So how many guys are there who are scrappy enough and strong enough, to, you know, to run up and down hillsides? Cause these are hills. Mm. They're not flat land mm. and run up and down hillsides. So you, know, you got to run to the bottom, even if just, just to look to see if they tied in the drainage ring. Well, if you're kind of a fat, lazy dude who thinks he's going to, watch a job site by sitting in your truck you're so wrong you have to be fit because you got to run up and down these are you know 200 feet down a lot of steps four or five flights of stairs you got to run down run back up i do that 20 times a day keeps you fit as hell just looking at the stuff forget about building it and then when you see at the bottom you could see something left you grab a couple sticks and carry them back up with you you got to get them back up and they're just going to sit down there and be a problem all that crap. So how many guys are, have, you know, but really the question is how come I kept going? Cause believe me, there was a million hardships. Just like anything. Why know? did you keep going? Because I was always given, I was always told that you're going to succeed. Nothing. Okay. Two, two, two things that, we were always preached in our circle is nothing succeeds like success. And that how that played out is as soon as I built a couple of really nice houses, my phone started ringing and other people want me to, you know, it's like Joe Rogan today. How come everybody wants to be on Joe Rogan's podcast? Because they know they're going to get seen and heard by millions. But it you wasn't always be that way with Joe Rogan, right? So, and it wasn't, you have to start somewhere and you have to you have, have to the work start. ethic. That's and you right. have to have, I and suppose. Joe started out as a comedian, you know, being scrappy. He's told his story a million times. Everybody has a story. I have the story. My story is almost the same. You know, I wasn't a comedian or anything, but, you know, how come when I was 16, I just kept on pouring concrete? I mean, I wanted to go play. Now, somebody told me to do that. And, and, uh, but I, but I really followed by example. What's the hardest thing about hiring and managing people? Collaborating. What What's difficult about that? You know, people, people, people think that things are going to be too easy. They have no respect for for, you know, things that are hard. It, I, I, you know, it's uh, whatever you do, anything done well is not simple 
whether you're selling cars or sewing shirts or pouring concrete or running a podcast, how many people do you have to call in order to get one meeting? Just like our meeting between us. We've been trying to schedule this for weeks. Find a time in a moment, but we keep calling each other back. Right. And I, when I hire, so there's certain people who's out begging for a job normally. Somebody who got lost their last job, probably. Why? It's because they was too hard and quit. And I have to make, I had a good contract to, uh, I had a really good contract to make people perform. I, I did do that. And that was good management, you know, and the, but employees just have to go by example. And people tend to call themselves out of a situation where they're not, where it's so obvious they're, they're pulled out. So I was a very hands-on working guy. And I would get up, I would show up to my job sites always 10 minutes earlier than everybody else was expected to. So I would see who show up, right? And I had a pretty rigid policy. I'd say, hey, man, I want you here at seven o'clock. And that means you're ready to work at seven, not getting out of your car. So that means I want to see at seven o'clock, I want to see assholes and elbows. And what that means in the construction trade is you're bending over work and you're picking up your shit, right? You're running and you're bending over and running. And that's what you do in construction, just about any trade. You got to bend over and pick stuff up. It starts on the ground and you lift it up. Whether you're doing countertops or painting or electrical or whatever it is. There is no trade that you don't do that. And so if they see me there at seven and I'm picking shit up, that's the example. And if they're like going on and hey man, you know, they're carrying a cup of coffee. It's like, no, you don't bring coffee into my job site. Don't bring your can of Coke in there. If you bring a can of Coke inside of a job site, I don't care what stage it's in, that thing spills over. It attracts ants. Even if it's the rough frame, even if it's the foundation. You don't bring around sugar and leave it everywhere. Bugs come. It's this horrible shit, right? It's like, like go into your office, put a can of Coke there and spill it all over your desk. People freak, but you can do it on a construction site. It's okay. That's just the type of thing. I mean, I could go on and on, but I led by example. Keep it clean, tight, sharp, show up. And I do it first. Once they get two or three people around you doing the same thing, everybody else falls in the line because they're too embarrassed not to produce. So that's employees and, and, and subcontractors. They had a one-page contract. It was all on one page. Tightly spaced, readable size, 12-point. Basically, it says, this is your job. This is the price. Refer to the plans for specifications. I'm not specifying anything on here. Refer to that document and that document. This is our contract. You sign at the bottom. And one of the most important lines on there says, I'm going to give you three days to perform, you know, to get to the point where you're going to perform. If you don't perform, we will have others perform your work for you at your expense. Pretty tough. You're a yeah. strict disciplinarian. But yeah. here's what here's what I'm hearing, right? So you set the culture for the organization by exactly. leading by example. So you set That's the right. culture and this is, this is how we're going to work. Yeah. And it comes right from the top. That's right. And I fall and I did, I was not absentee and just like on the phone telling people what to do. I showed up, I stood there. Right. And I would love to muck in every day, man. I'm going to pick up a shovel and, you know, transfer a pile of sand. I love doing that. 
and I get pumped and strong. And I will, I will say that is a huge reason why I'm still as fit as I am today. What age are you, Dwayne? 61. And I don't like go to a gym and work out, but I will tell you, I can throw two, two by twelves on my back and run up the hill. I compete swimming now. I didn't really learn how to swim until I was 55. I mean, really competitively. I could always swim because I surf, but to learn to competitively swim, I learned that at 55 because I joined the, it's called the masters. Anybody can do it. They're all over the world. It's basically people who just want to swim every day. And there was a coach there and I listened to her. She's kind of crazy. She was used to be, I think, an Olympic swimmer. And then now she coaches. And this lady who was my age, she might even younger than me, yelling at me every morning at six o'clock in the morning. Stretch out your arms further. Kick, kick. I would laugh at her. I go, fuck, I'm volunteering to be here. It's like, what are we going to do? Am I going to win the Olympics? But guess what? I go now and I compete at the Spetsathlon. I, three years ago, I got the bronze. Last year, I got the silver. And uh, for in a 3,000 meter run. Uh, um, so it's a great feeling to be 60 and to swim 3,000 meters. That's a long way from land. In open ocean. Just, yeah, open ocean. I could just keep going. You know, I could keep going for hours. Just hours. It's like walking. Dwayne, tell me about the business, right? Um, how, how big did it grow? How much money are we talking here? So I was doing single family homes, and then I slowly transferred into building multi-units. So in my 30s, I was doing singles, you know, I would do one average every 120 days. It would take me nine to 18 months to build, but I'd do a new start, so on. A lot of my time was involved in uh, finding new properties to build. Um, and so people would call who owned empty land and they would say, hey, I see you're a developer. You know, you want to work with me? Do you want to buy this land or whatever? And so once you're successful, and they people see that you can complete a project. And this is the thing I asked almost anybody I built a home for or with or people who I worked with. And I asked them, I go, how come you chose me to work with? And they all said the same thing. They said, because I knew it was going to get done. Okay, competence. They knew you were competent. Yeah, it's not that they said, oh, you're a nice guy. I liked you. Mm. That wasn't why. It was because they knew their money was at stake and they wanted to make sure it was invested in something that was going to be successful. How did they know you were that competent from seeing the because other they saw work? Was it over and over? They saw yeah. me finish. Yeah. Right. They saw it get completed and they were well built and I had a good reputation. Your reputation will travel so fast. So fast. And if you do, if you build one, if you go and build a fence for somebody, a front yard fence, and if you don't have the contract, Go to somebody's house who's got a piece of shit fence in their front yard and say, hey, I will mow your lawn and build you a new fence for one-tenth what it's just the cost of the wood. They say, why? They say, because I can't, I just want your house to be beautiful because I intend to be part of this neighborhood and I want the whole neighborhood to be beautiful. And if your house is worth more, my houses are going to be worth more. And they will say yes. Okay. Then go build. It takes a week to build a fence. 
five days of your time. And then put your sign up. Just put a really nice plaque. Have it carved out of brass. Don't put it on the top. Put it at the bottom down in the corner. They'll find it. So what I'm hearing here is be prepared at the start to go out on a limb, maybe do something for free, bust your ass, do the best job you possibly can, and safe in the knowledge that your reputation will yeah. grow. Yeah. I mean, once you know what you're doing, you go work for a contractor for two to four years. I mean, if you have no college, you're 18 years old, you don't know what to do. Go walk on a job site and say, hey, I want to pick up trash. I want to be your trash picker-upper. And then bring your own bags that are more efficient or something. Figure out a way to be more efficient. Within two weeks, that guy's going to say, oh, my God, this guy knows how to get shit done. He knows how to organize stuff. Say, hey, I separated all your trash in different piles so we can save money on recycling. You will find some way to be efficient. Something. You will if you want to do that. And they're going to start raising you up. And then you say, hey, I really want to learn this trade. I want to learn that trade. Other subcontractors will see you and they'll go, hey, man, I mean, I my good guys got hit up all the time for other subs saying, hey, you want to come work for me? Totally. And if so they how, want to leave. How big did the business grow, Dwayne? Oh, um, what happened is over time now in America, there's a interesting rule. If you build a property and you don't sell it and you rent it, the equity is not taxed. I think it's pretty much true anywhere in the world. So if you get some investors together and you build something and you don't sell it, well then of course there's equity in it because it's worth some of the parts is worth more. So you need just do an example. You build something for buy a land for hundred or even last one I just did. I just sold it for 2.75 closed to yesterday. And is that, that 2.75 million, Dwayne? Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a lot of money, but uh, uh, I, I found a partner. He put in a half a million. Um, we put about a million and a half into construction, sold it for 2.75, paid realtors a couple hundred. We had about a half a million in equity. And I was renting it if I would have. Um, I would have kept renting it had Oakland not changed the rental rules. That's a different story. It's turning communist there. So tough luck for me. So there's one of those situations where, you know, I could sit around and bitch and whine, but it's happening to everybody. So I ended up uh, having to sell it because I couldn't rent it anymore. I'll have to pay tax on that money at some level. There's some write-offs, but so... I, I, over the first 10 years, I built a lot of single family homes and I built up a lot of equity and I would 1031 exchange every time I could. That means you keep your equity and you turn it into something bigger or something else. I ended up buying apartments. I rented those out and I accumulated about 30 properties by the time I was about 48. And so from the time I was 28, to 48 over 20 years, I accumulated a nice pile of properties. The gross value of those at the time, this was 13 years ago, um, was 
uh, I mean, this is, uh, uh, yeah, total gross value was probably 50 million. My equity at the time was probably just 6 million. Um, and if I would have, but that was at the bottom of the market, it dropped. I, uh, it, within a few years later, it was probably going to be 10. If I would have held on to everything today, and when I'm 61, by the way, I lost it all in a divorce. It's a different story. It's a horrible thing. Don't get divorced. But if I would have kept it all today, it, I'd probably be worth 30 million. Nice number. And so, I would be enjoying a nice passive income, probably a couple thousand dollars a day in passive income. I engineered that. That came from carrying boards up hills and just showing up every day at seven o'clock. So it compounds. Divorce, well, is a, for me, it was disastrous. What what age were you when you got divorced? If, well, I walked out of the courtroom with a clean slate at 53. How did you find that process? It's horrible. It's grotesque. It's modern day slavery. It's it's uh i can't even believe it's legal i can't believe it's the law well maybe i can believe it's the law because i've seen how corrupt law is how did you um how did that experience that divorce experience and it was a protracted divorce over three years or something how did that affect your mental health it's my kids um i mean there was no court order taking my kids away from me because i never was accused of any wrongdoing but because the way the law works, what existing roles you have in your marriage is assumed that those roles will continue. So it's like the old adage, the beatings will continue until morale improves. That's kind of the way it is in divorce, because if I've set up a standard where my ex-wife took care of the house and the kids every day and I went to work. So when you get divorced, they say, well, that's the way it's going to stay. So if the kids want to go and hang out with you, well, that's nice. Good for you. But primarily they're going to create a situation where she has direct control of the kids every day. And so you know, I didn't realize I was setting up my own, you know, prison cell. I trusted her and that was my mistake. I, what I, you know, I, I should have been way more proactive in raising the kids. I should have been Mr. Dad, you know, like, oh, I'm taking it's Tuesdays and Thursdays are my days to take them to school. But that's kind of stupid if you have somebody you can trust and get along with. I mean, hey, I was home every night, every day to see my kids. Like I I, I built a 10,000 foot shop in the back of our property and my daughter would come down and I'd help her make a little things for her car or for her life. And, you know, I helped my daughters raise their horses and I was very active in their lives doing stuff, but taking them to school and taking them to doctor's appointments and all that kind of crap, the stuff they have to do. My wife definitely did that. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. But in court, that's what they look at. They say, well, 
who takes the kids to the doctor's offices? Mom. So we're going to let her have all the money to keep doing that, providing for the kids that way. So what does that leave for dad? Oh, only in the off time. So then once she now, but I'm not in the house anymore. <laughs> so what happens to you? You're just like this person who better be sending a check. So they don't, they don't recognize the other side of it. And they don't, they just don't recognize it. That's not part of the law. So you end up being, you know, just a, just a provider. You're a tax slave, a tax mule. So there was a, there was a massive financial and emotional impact from the divorce and you lost financially as well as the kids you lost financially yeah your business. my ex-wife planned it for several years she was my partner in business and had a minority role but she was still my partner in the company and so she was very clever about when she planned this for a couple of years and my, my divorce is a very special case she was by a person who was very um uh, planned. She had planned. She was a big planner, and she planned this divorce for years. So, the net result to me was almost. I, I walked away broke. I walked away with zero. I had some assets, but I had huge debts as well. The debts and the assets managed. Uh, they they equaled, and so I basically was a zero. I, I went from having, you know, millions of dollars of assets and liabilities to zero or some assets and some liabilities, but they, they netted out to zero. And so I had to start over again at 53. And that's the truth. And so, yes, how did I feel? Um, I, you know, it's really hard to look up at that mountain again and go, oh my God, I got to climb all those steps. I remember when it really struck home, I was out of the house. I wasn't seeing my kids. They were... My, my ex-wife was doing her level best to make sure that it was never convenient for me to see them. It affected my son a lot too. It was horrible. And my daughters, three of them. Um, and of course I was sad every day. And I remember standing in the, uh, at 53 in the parking lot, that dirty, ugly parking lot of Home Depot in the morning, six o'clock with all the other guys who are having to buy their lumber. I mean, that's like the low man positions job, right? I had to move all the way back to that point again. It's like, don't pass, go, do not collect $200, go back to the beginning and start your way around that game again. And standing there just going, oh my God, I was just like, I was sleeping on a friend's couch. He gave me this basement and I didn't even have a job. I well, a friend of mine hired me as a carpenter. So that's quite um, a come down from oh, owning. Yeah, I went from living on a ranch, having my own plane, and you know, collecting rent from probably forty different properties every month, and managing that. And then we'd have setbacks too. You know, tractor would blow up, and house wouldn't sell. You end up in a lawsuit. You have unexpected expenses, but you have all this income to offset it, right? And you're running a business. And the end result, though, you have all these assets that ultimately would become ripe and pay off. So you have a huge incentive for a payoff. But to go from that to like big zero and standing in line to buy 
your payoff is if you buy the right boards that day and you carry them to the job site and you make a hundred bucks. And so slowly, slowly I had to put it together and I, but I knew how to find a new opportunity. Right. So I approached my old investors and I said, look, got this lot. I found one, but I ended up finding properties and building houses again. And I had my pedigree of being able to be successful. So guys invested in me again. I put together investors again, but I started from zero. Yeah. At 53, I started from zero when I was 29. I started from zero again. I, I My first time I went zero was at 19 or 20. I built a spec house. It didn't sell. And it uh, we had to sell it for just what we had into it. So I, that was the third time I'd gone broke. And uh, I mean, it's not nice, it's not happy. And the worst part of it was just not seeing my kids. It's a horrible thing. But that's the, that's our, that's our process. That's our system. So Dwayne, at the time because of the divorce, right? Did you get any time... counseling or therapy or, or therapeutic help? Did, 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 did the services offer you any help on that side for your emotional well-being? No, well, like the a... government doesn't, but I, did I do it myself? Hell yes. I sought out all kinds of help to understand why and how this was happening. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're like going from having this routine every day to be gay, basically becoming a prisoner. 70% or 80% of all divorces are called by women, caused by women. And the ones that men do are usually a function of the woman not being, you know, right. It's not, guys don't leave, women leave. This is well known. It's well documented. And there is a system are called our legal system, which is just lives off this. They just love this. So you become a part of that structure and... So I had to understand why this was happening. And Larry Bellotta does a great job explaining the mechanics of why this happens. There's, I, I won't go into it here. You can learn all about it if you research, you know, why the psychology behind why women leave. There's all kinds of reasons, but it happens. So, but you have to keep yourself together. Okay. And you have to stay positive. It's hard. And I had a lot of help from friends. I had a really strong my side of the family was very strong there was a time when i started uh, one thing i did is i looked historically i said well okay I'm sitting here alone now 53 lost all this shit where did i come from who was i from and i so i, I did a big research on my grandfather and who died by the way when he was 53 when i before i was born 10 years before i was born and i put something in perspective to myself at that moment. I was like, wait a minute. I could just lay down and be like, fucking life's over. I did all this work. It was so hard. I'm going to quit. I'm just going to collect, you know, I'm going to just be a bricklayer and work a day and go drink every night to ease my pain. And I'm just going to wake up every morning and sort of show up as an average guy. Yeah, you can make a living. It's fine. You can live that way. Where did you get the so motivation my, from? Yeah, so I looked at my grandfather and, I, mm. and I, I, I put this in perspective. He was a very successful guy, by the way. He worked his ass off. He came, he was an immigrant, came here with nothing. He was 28. His wife died after a second kid was born. Giving birth to a second kid. Died. And he was like, fuck, I'm alone. He just was you know right after the great depression of 1928 he was 19 he was 1932 
think he was like 28 years old. He was born in 2000 or he was born in 1903 or 1904. Uh, whatever. He was late 20s. And his wife's dead. He's got two babies. Ah, where the fuck? You know, in New York, there's not social services just sitting around. He had to go and give his kids to the aunts, his dead, deceased wife's sisters. And then he had to go scramble and figure out a way to make a living. And he didn't have that network anymore. Didn't have a wife to support him. He ended up in California and he started a new business. He figured out something that needed to be done. It needed, they needed food delivery for all the new construction. So he started a food delivery business and he worked on it really hard. Showed up every morning, stayed every night at late, worked his ass off, wake up at four in the morning, bought his own chickens, had his own eggs, making his own bread, Greek guy, and started making better sandwiches. Deliver them every day. He had two trucks, four trucks, 10 trucks. Ended up being called Orange County Food Service. He was the biggest food delivery company in California. Boom. He's 53. Drunk driver kills him on the road. Bam! It's dead. My mom's getting married. No dad now. No mom, no dad. He got remarried. He had, my mother, my stepmother was very sweet. Step-grandmother, she was great. Called her Jimmy. So, hey, I was still alive. 53. He was dead. So this is part of the coping strategy, right? You're still that, alive. There's what skills. do I got? Hmm. Yeah. Who am I to bitch? I wake up every morning with 24 hours, all 10 fingers and 10 toes. What am I bitching about? I'm not dead. What more do you need? You're fucking alive, motherfucker. No, I mean, hey, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. You got to carry the sack of cement up the hill. You got to stew up at six o'clock, but you know, carry boards, get splinters. I mean, unfortunately, I'm not a brain surgeon. I asked, <laughs> I had this kick-ass engineer, Stuart Larson. He's about 30 years older than me. For years, he was my engineer in the Oakland Hills. Stu Larson. Brilliant guy. He's got his master's, almost his PhD in engineering out of Cal, you know, and he's written papers on engineering, blah, blah, blah. He's a structural engineer. Real well-respected guy. Um, I said to him one day, I said, hey, teach me how to do your job. I want to do what you do instead of, and I was a developer. I was building houses and, and getting them done. He just looked at me and he was like, the fuck are you talking about? You're a developer. He goes, yeah, you might have an engineering degree. Technically, you can do this. But, dude, you're good at what you do. He goes, because, you know, I always wanted to be what you are. But I had to be an engineer. You fucking believe in yourself. He wouldn't teach me. So do you think it was self-belief, <laughs> right? That got you through. Yeah, I mean, I was curious. It looked it looked good to me to him to sit in the office and tool away. And, you know, it's nice. It's mm. quiet. He plays the radio all day. But he was looking at me going, I wish I was you. <laughs> but he couldn't do what I do. 
I was good at, I'm good at what I do. I guess I try hard and I, and I care, you know, and I learned these set of skills. Hey, I have a brother. He's a year older than me. He grew up in the exact same circumstance, the same place, same time. He fucked off a lot more. He played sports in high school. He didn't care what my dad said. He would just bullshit his way around it. But he worked hard. He is now one of the world's best, our most popular clothing designers. You see his clothes all over the place. You don't know it. His name's August McGray, uh, David August Clothing. One of his more well-known clients is Connor McGregor. So you see the line August McGregor. It's a line of clothing. They have, you know, they they do drops all the time. They make sweet sweatshirts, t-shirts. That's just one of that's a sideline for him, side business. But he does that with Connor. You know, like that Connor adds his own whiskey and shit. Well, this is his clothing line. But August, David August, he has his own line of fine men's clothing. David's getting married in a couple of weeks for his third time. <laughs> so He's had to restart. Believe me, when he gets divorced, it costs him a lot. So, and he's gone broke. Well, I don't know, broke, but lost a lot a couple times. He had partners who totally ripped him off. Mm. But he focuses on it. He keeps going. What advice would you have for a 53-year-old man who's getting divorced? He's losing all his money. Um, he's really struggling emotionally mentally and what, what 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 would you say to him you know you got to remember what you loved something and let that be your goal you got to have a goal goals are so important and i run out of goals sometimes too like my goal was to sail around the world right and in five years i didn't make it yet i thought i would but I haven't, I've gone 25,000 miles, but mostly in circles. I'm like Odysseus going around in circles. I've been stuck in the Mediterranean and now to the Canary Islands. A lot of reasons for that. But I kind of like, oh my God, I got to cross the Mediterranean again and then get out to the Atlantic. And then I can start on my goal, which is to go around the world. A lot of times I feel like, oh, you know what? I've done it so much already. I'm just going to quit. But then what's my goal? I didn't have a goal. When you lose a, a man without a goal, it's like a ship without a rudder. And so you have to be able to focus on something and then make, you know, like, what was it? Racing cars, raising kids. You're 53 and you don't have kids to raise anymore. Make an orphanage. Oh, I'm going to have a goal of going down to Guatemala and making the best orphanage or somewhere where they're fucked up with kids or in Central Africa. Who knows? A goal. Can't do it tomorrow, but you have a goal. And then you start working towards that goal. You have to have a positive thing to think about to in order to guide you every day. And in my case, I wanted to sail around the world. Now, I got a really nice expensive boat, but I can tell you, I could do it in about one-tenth this cost. And I knew that. But I shopped and shopped and shopped and I got a good deal on this boat one day and then I had some other things happen and I had the money. And so I, I did what I could afford and I could spend more money than what I have for sure. I'm somewhere in the continuum. So that keeps you motivated. And the other thing was I wanted to have 
a relationship with my kids, despite my ex-wife's best efforts. I have a great relationship with two of my kids now, not three, two, but I still want the third one. Think about it all the time. Um, it's a long story beyond the scope of this, but I, and I was, and I had a lot of good role models. My brother, God bless him. If he's watching, David, if he watches this, he was constantly telling me, Dwayne, just take the high road. Just take the high road. Because, you know, you want to do horrible, evil things when somebody fucks you over. I was so mad. Oh, my God. So mad. So mad to, you know, my ex-wife taking advantage of this. And using this stupid law to destroy the integration of a beautiful family that we'd created. And that's exactly what happened. And the kids were negatively affected. And so it won't matter. That does matter. Sorry. So but, I guess the, the advice for somebody going through divorce, say who's facing catastrophe, is to imagine a new future, to yeah. have a goal, put one foot up in front of the other every single day and, and just you believe. Gotta, you got to keep it together and, and, and keep positive mental attitude by, by being focused on something that's better than this. Don't just start drinking. It's, I, did, I drank for two years, by the way, from the, through my divorce. And I never drank in my life. The pain was so bad. Just the pain of not seeing my kids, of not, of having, because pain is emanated through your brain. You're, you're figuring out a new way to solve a problem of getting up in the morning and going to go to work, you know? And, and I didn't, I mean, I went from having lines of credit to buy a property to not having anything. My ex-wife just destroyed the, inter the, 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 the system that we had. I mean, well, she expected me just to pay her forever. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't cotton to that. I'm not buying it. She goes, well, then you're going to lose everything. And I said, well, at least I'll be independent and free. She said, well, you can take that chance. She went to court. She kind of won. She took everything instead of half. But I got my freedom. I walked out with a, it's called a global settlement. So I was free. So for me, it was more important to be wholly independent than to have somebody be able to look over my shoulder for the rest of my life who hates me. I mean, <laughs> why would she divorce me? So that's what the law would provide. Oh, by the way, this person you were married for to and who hates your fucking guts said it <laughs> she told me on the day she wanted the divorce i can't stand you anymore ain't you i was like holy fuck we've been married and sleeping in the same bed for 22 years and today this is what you tell me and i try to talk her out of it for the next couple months no way and i'd say okay you didn't just think about that that day she and i one day i got into her email or to her phone and i could see the messages and she'd been planning forever and i was like oh, a couple of years i was like I just turned it off. I was like, this is hopeless. My wife, on that day, she asked for the divorce. She And I said, what are you talking about? We're going to do this. She goes, you owe me. It's like, I owe you. What do you mean I owe you? We've been sleeping in the same bed and sharing the same shit for 22 years. How could one of us owe the other anything? So you get half. Okay. But I don't owe you anything. Nobody owes, nobody owes anybody anything ever. It's bullshit. You make a decision. Do something together. I mean, I guess if they fuck you over, but 
maybe I, I don't know but generally no you don't know you, you get what you get you don't throw a fit and she was throwing a fit and i said well you know what you don't like the way it went i quit by quitting there was a moment where we could negotiate if you're not willing to walk away from your situation that sucks but have the balls and the self-confidence that you can succeed somewhere else you're not negotiating in full confidence you can't beg somebody to give you something they have to want to give it to you they have to need to give it to you so my ex-wife wanted me to keep working for the next 20 30 years for her benefit wanted me to sign this contract that said i would unless she gets married magically at that time. But if she was getting it from me, 20, 30,000 a month, why in the world would she? She would just enjoy that lifestyle. So, and what am I? I'm just a tax slave. And now, I mean, as long as I keep working and providing and I get, you know, half of it or something, then I have to, what's my life? It's just to keep supporting that shit. So I was like, no, I'll take zero. So once I was willing to walk away with nothing, she had nothing to negotiate for. And she was very clever. She kept me in court for a couple of years. Do you think you've you do you think you've recovered from the bitterness and the anger? Do you think you're in a different place now? Yeah, well what I did is you know, I what I I'll tell you what is what I did is studied um, psychology for 10 years. And I realized why the failure occurred. I mean, I am what I am. Okay. I'm a guy who likes to work hard and get stuff done. I like to, I'm kind of loud and boisterous and I'm, you know, make shit happen and and if you're fucking, if you're not doing a good job at something and you're fucking up, I'm not the guy who's going to, oh, you poor thing, you know, you know, politically correct. I'm just going to tell you, what the fuck are you doing? No, don't do it like that. Do it like this. Don't roll up the rose like that. Roll it up like this. What's wrong with you? You know, is that popular today? Not really, but whatever. You're going to learn, guarantee you, but I'll go have a beer with you right after. I'm going to laugh at you to your face. And if you keep making the same mistake again, roll up the cord wrong every day, I'm send you back to school i don't know I, it's like socially politically i'm not correct so um i that's what i am and i i don't know i mean that's really that's all i could complain about in just some kind of gruff but i can't change that and i mean that's my personality and um so my ex, she wasn't happy with that after a while. Truth is, she was never happy about it from the beginning. And this is what I learned by studying psychology and by studying history and by researching what happened over the years. She was an opportunist. I got schnookered in a way. She gave me three kids and she stuck by my side for 22 years. Okay. She helped me a lot to make money. But I didn't ever get to use it for what I wanted. Not very much of it anyway. She mostly used it for what she wanted. Okay. We want to talk to a young 20, 30-year-old man, right? 
who are starting out. So what I want is your advice. So I'm going to ask a question about advising young men who are starting out in life and want to generate wealth. And I want to hear your response, right? So Dwayne, if you were in your 20s again today and you were starting out and you wanted to build away wealth and generate, create wealth, what would your advice be? Well, I know how to buy and build real estate. So I would do that all over again. I would pick a place that has better politics for what I'm doing. Like right now, I do it in Texas or Tennessee or somewhere. I and mean, that's if you're in America. If, if I were in Greece, I would do it in the most popular places where tourism is, or maybe in Athens. Or if I was in Spain, I might do it in South. Every area has a place, right? Hmm. I would buy and hold real estate. I'd would buy you, it and never sell it. Would you okay. go into the corporate world? Would you? Me? Yeah. No, 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 no. Not today because there's, you know, corporations. I, I guess what yeah, I'm asking is everything, but how, you're, you got to be a political genius in order to succeed in, in corporations. And that's not who I am. Mm. That's you're asked if I was doing this again, mm. I'm not politically astute personally. And if you are, if that's your thing, well then yeah, for sure. Okay. When I left my dad's company, he was angry because he wanted me to take over his company, but I wanted to do my own thing. He said, okay, if you're going to do that, two rules, only work for yourself and hire a really good designer. My brother, you look at what he does. He works for himself and he has a great designer. Now he happens to be a good designer of clothes and he hires others to help with it, but he works for himself. So, and he's in clothing. That has nothing to do with real estate, but we ended up in the same place. So I guess what, what I'm hearing is if you were in your 20s today, be self-employed, back yourself, oh, yeah. believe in yourself. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I wouldn't work for Starbucks or whoever else, you know, I don't know, a big company. Um, You got to own the company. Like if you like boats or something, I would find a niche within the boat market and sell it to Beneteau. You know, oh, I'm going to make the very best steering wheel or something or make it find something that doesn't work and figure out a better way to make it work and design, make it beautiful. And if you can't make it beautiful, hire somebody who knows how to make things beautiful. They're out there. There's all kinds of art students and, and design and graphic design people who are dying for work and they'll work for nothing. They'll work, couple, you know, a couple hundred bucks, 500 bucks. You're going to go to get a great design from them, you know, but it's the overall operation of the thing that you're going to create. You want to be that person. And uh, yeah, you have to find a, a how important a network. is networking, Dwayne? Huge. You got to keep track of everybody and be able and, and remember people. And uh, you know what I do? I send a lot of postcards, not emails, postcards people who meaningful in my life and you get a postcard in the mail like i might send a postcard to you pretty soon and you're gonna get that thing and you're gonna what am i gonna do with it it's like it's like it's everywhere you can't throw it away it's hard to throw a postcard away a little message on the back hey it was great meeting you nice talking to you so that's the personal touch right. with... they're gonna remember you mm. and they're gonna you're, and it's gonna be beautiful and you're gonna hang it on the wall because it's gorgeous Right, something stylish for a while. 
unless you hate me, you know, fuck that guy. I mean, you might burn it. <laughs> Use it as a dartboard, even better. You throw darts at that thing. Even then, you're thinking about me, right? But an email and a text message and a fucking Instagram message, that's bullshit. So the, the personal touch, the relationship piece is huge in entrepreneurship. Huge, 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 huge. Yes, it's very important. And do quality work. Work for yourself. Design matters. Design, design matters. Design, 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 design. And, and you'd better fucking love it because you're going to be doing it all the time. Yeah. Nobody said it's going to be easy. So you got to love what you do because when it gets hard, you'll stop doing it if you don't love it, right? Yeah. Well, it's just like you. You want to have a podcast show and interview people. Oh, yeah. I'm going to start at nine. I'm going to be done at five. I'm going to take an hour lunch and go down and drink coffee with everybody. Right? Is that what you're doing? No, that doesn't happen. <laughs> no fucking way, right? You're probably mm. thinking about it at three in the morning going, oh, mm. my God. Yeah. He's in a different time zone. I better get up and set this up. Yeah, there's no way. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope it helps everybody. It was lovely talking to you, and it is an incredible lifestyle. Um, and one that you built, you built pretty much yourself, which is extraordinary. Yeah, you got to keep, keep positive and take the high road.